Shalom, Salam, and welcome to the History of the Land of Israel podcast. I am Shail Ben Ephraim, and I welcome you to the one podcast with the guts to survey the most provocative historical narrative in the world. Episode 12, Egyptian Lamentations, Canaanite Celebrations. The Middle Bronze Age was a complicated and confusing time in both Canaan and Egypt. There isn't much evidence remaining from either place in this period, and what remains can seem contradictory and plain confusing. Nonetheless, let's dive into what experts call the Canaanite Golden Age. Like everything in this period of Levantine history, it starts in Egypt. Hepi II ruled for 90 years. If that figure is accurate, and it's probably a bit of an exaggeration, it was the longest reign in human history. We don't know much about his personal life, but two statues of the pharaoh do remain. One is in the Brooklyn Museum. The more interesting one can be found at the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. In it, the king is shown as a naked child. That is probably a reference to his age at the time of taking power. We assume he grew a bit and bought some clothes at some point. During Pepi II's old age, Egypt began to experience instability. One theory is that as he got older, he grew less capable of controlling the most powerful kingdom in the world. Over the 20 years following Pepi's death, 18 kings and one queen ruled over Egypt. That kind of turnover is a surefire sign that things aren't going great. Another theory about the instability concerns our friends the Canaanites. Some Egyptologists have long held that Asiatic invasions weakened the Old Kingdom, but there's really no evidence of that. Instead, the theory is derived chiefly from later forays, which we will cover in detail in this podcast, a couple of episodes down the road. According to the sage Ippuware, the cause of Egypt's misery was the Nile's failure to fill. Here is a quote from his famous and somewhat dramatic laments. Lo, the desert claims the land. Towns are ravaged. Upper, upper Egypt becomes a wasteland. Lo, everyone's hair has fallen out. Lo, great and small, say, I wish I were dead. Lo, children of nobles are dashed against walls. Infants are put on high ground. Food is lacking. Wearers of fine linen are beaten with sticks. Ladies suffer like maidservants. Lo, those who are intoned are cast on high grounds. Men stir up strife unopposed. Groaning is throughout the land, mingled with laments. See now the land deprived of kingship. What the pyramid hid is empty. The people are diminished. Well, I guess it's safe to say the land of Egypt was laid low. Okay, sorry about that. Now this lament may sound like an exaggeration, and it probably is. However, there are signs that the Nile was not doing its job. Global cooling reduced the amount of rainfall in Egypt and elsewhere in Africa around 2500 BC. This event occurred in a large area spanning Italy to Tibet. 
even the Fayum Lake, which is 65 meters deep, dried up at this time. We know far more from modern evidence about what a famine caused by unexpected Nile behavior can do. For example, a 10th century famine in Egypt killed an estimated 600,000 people. An observer then said something similar to the laments of Ippower. Quote, All Upper Egypt was dying of hunger, to such an extent that everyone has come to eating his children. The entire country had become starved like a starved grasshopper. So we can poetically view the Nile as both the creator of the Old Kingdom and its destroyer. But there are probably also other explanations as well. For example, a political one. As the top of the pyramid, pardon the pun, became unstable, local rulers became increasingly influential. The classic theory for this was that the descendants of Pepi II fought amongst themselves and tore Egypt apart. That's possible. But another explanation is also plausible. Pepi II was a very successful king through much of his reign, and there are some signs he practiced a decentralization policy. However, he may have been too successful in that and hampered kingly power in the process for the long run. Now, when we think of the collapse of a kingdom, we have dark and chaotic times in mind. The collapse of the old kingdom was dark. We just saw that with those descriptions. No argument about that. But the time between the demise of the old kingdom and the emergence of the middle kingdom wasn't necessarily a bad time for Egypt. Starting in 2134 BCE, we see a recovery in the country, both in terms of the economy and, to a lesser extent, in terms of political power. However, the nature of power had changed profoundly. Local rulers and elites took on an increasing share of power and helped to prevent chaos. Two competing kingly lines emerged the Heracleopolitan kings from Bahir Yusuf oversaw the restoration of the agricultural potential of the Nile, but they did so without the grandeur and overwhelming power of the pharaohs. Meanwhile, back in old Thebes, the remains of the old monarchy began to reorganize. Those two forces found themselves in a battle for supremacy. If this sounds destructive and chaotic, you're right but only partially so. The warfare between those two forces appears to have been limited and sporadic, since we mostly see signs of stability in intermediate-era Egypt. In the Old Kingdom period, elite specialists crafted most artifacts, which were of very high quality, but now Egypt moved to mass production. The quality just wasn't the same. I can imagine the people of Memphis saying, they don't make them like they used to, but the change was an indication of a broader and more participatory economy. We're seeing something uh, approaching an Egyptian middle class emerging. There's also a far wider variety of styles, reflecting a decline in centralization and a rise in regionalism. Graves also became much plainer in the intermediate period. That's a bummer for us because we loved seeing those fancy and incredible pyramids. However, it is another indication of the more egalitarian society that was emerging in Egypt, 
one where the differences between the poor and the elite were just not as significant as they had been. Later on in the intermediate period, we start to see poor people commission artisans for their tombs. Sure, they're crude and kind of unimpressive, but far better than their impoverished ancestors could afford. The tombs were usually made of mud brick rather than stone, so they haven't lasted as well as the rich peoples have, but we still found them. And there's no question that it was better to be poor or middle class in the first intermediate period than when kingly power was at its peak. The misfortune of the Egyptian kings proved to be a great boon for Canaan. Indeed, the 2000 to 1550 BCE period is often known as the Golden Age of Canaanite culture. In this Middle Bronze Age, fortified cities popped up throughout the land. They built on the metalsmith capabilities of their Chalcolithic predecessors and created a wide variety of tin and bronze technology. These materials were used for everything from the trademark duck-billed axe to figures of gods and goddesses. And I'm going to have a special episode about Canaanite religion coming up. In this period, the center of gravity shifted from the country's center to the coast. The coastal area isn't great for the pastoral lifestyle that was so common in the region, so there's an increased urbanization near the wonderful Mediterranean beaches and elsewhere. During this time, the population of Canaan grew from roughly 100,000 to 140,000 people, reflecting the prosperity and relatively good health of the population and their strong caloric intake. Now, fortified towns are the element most identified with Canaan in the Middle Bronze Age. By the end of this golden age of their culture, the fortified cities had become so popular they superseded the typical early Bronze Age stone and brick walls that we saw in the country. The most important city in this era was Chatzol. Chatzol had close ties to Syria's big and more politically influential cities. At its peak, Chatzol had about 15,000 people and was very prosperous. Letters found at the Mari archives, which we'll also talk about in future episodes, mention envoys and products coming from Chatzor to Mari and vice versa. Egyptian sources also mentioned the city, so it was internationally renowned. It also had cults of personality for its leaders, very similar to the Syro Mesopotamian style of the time, and as we'll see, different from what was happening in the rest of Canaan. The key to its influence was regional trade. The city was the epicenter of interaction with the East. People came from miles around to get the latest and coolest Mesopotamian tchotchkes. And as always, when you trade with other people, you absorb their culture. So throughout the northern area of Canaan, there's a serious Syrian and Mesopotamian influence. Now, Canaan didn't have anything approaching the pyramids in magnificence, but it did have its own form of monumental construction. The cities that popped up throughout the country in this period were almost all surrounded by massive earthen ramparts, and there's a picture of them on uh, Twitter and Facebook websites 
for the podcast. Those started to appear in Syria before they did in Canaan, um, and we can see them arrive there at around 2100 BCE. But a century or so later, we start to see them in the land of Israel. And the proximity and ties between Syria and the north and the relatively short time that interceded between their appearance means we can assume this was a case of cultural influence. For a while, it was believed to have also been a time of immigration from Syria, and that that's how the technology spread. But there's really no evidence that that was the case. And we know from how people wear jeans worldwide, you don't have to migrate or invade to have massive cultural influence. All you need to do is hear about it and see it with your own eyes and understand the advantages that the new technology offers. Indeed, the quick and efficient adoption of these new formats indicates a need for these structures. That suggests urbanization and the concentration of power in the cities in Canaan. So, a shift away from nomads to city-based elites. It also hints at a society where city-states are connected and interact with each other. What this adoption means is that cities were engaged in imitation and emulation, competition, warfare, and also exchanging material goods and information. Considering the small distances in Canaan, this is not a huge surprise, and we will see that it is a constant factor in our neck of the woods. Like anything else, archaeologists have argued over why these sites were built. The most obvious reason would be self-defense, and that may have been a factor. But as we noted, this was a time of a reduction in Egyptian power. There doesn't seem to have been intense local warfare either, although some evidence of violence does exist. It was a good time for the old Canaanites, hence the Golden Age idea. To some, this was an exercise in power. It may be similar to the megalomaniacal period projects like the pyramids in Egypt. Here is an excellent quote from Shlomo Boinomovich on the political role of monumental construction. Human behavior is generally governed by the effort to conserve energy in the production and distribution of goods necessary to sustain life. The ability to expend energy, especially in the form of other people's labor, in non-utilitarian ways, is the most basic and universally understood symbol of power. In simpler terms, the bigger the project, the more impressive the power of the ruler and the ruling class. But conversely, it makes those at the bottom of the pile feel inferior and powerless. It's designed to make them despair at revolting or demanding rights. Therefore, some ancient historians note that civilizations in their early stages tend to have more monumental structures than they do once they're more established. The appearance of pyramids early in Egyptian history is a case in point, although there's certainly other reasons for that too. If we look at the ramparts in this context, they make a lot of sense. First, moving a bunch of earth around is not particularly expensive. According to one estimate, it would take 200 workers over four months to build a rampart of 32,000 meters. That's something a relatively prosperous city-state could do without undue stress. Indeed, it could be done using only the local workforce. But second, 
Despite the low costs, you get a pretty impressive outcome if you move enough Earth. Look at pictures of the ramparts and see what I'm talking about. They're still pretty impressive. That might be enough to cow impressionable locals, and that appears to have been the main point of the construction. If this, these theories are correct, and I believe they are, it has exciting implications. Instead of being the result of urbanization, the creation of ramparts was an essential part of the process of urbanization as well. There's evidence that at first, the ramparts surrounded tents and huts rather than homes. It was a way stronger tribal leaders could signal that they were powerful and that the people should gravitate towards the area they controlled. Israel Finkelstein noted that these constructs are, quote, dynastic propaganda typical of early states striving for legitimacy, end quote. Once completed, these ramparts were focused on city gates. In most cases, the gates were filled with the hustle and bustle of central marketplaces that they hosted. That would show that they were not necessarily defensive, as much economic activity took place outside the gates. When we have defensive walls, we often see the economic activity deep inside the city, where it can be away from harm. I ask you to think back to the episode about the walls of Jericho. If you remember, those walls and tower were built before there was a city in the area, or even much of a settlement. We see that the most significant projects in these eras were not utilitarian. Instead, they had a symbolic function. To me, this raises the fascinating proposition that humans often value symbols over pragmatic concerns. After all, we achieved our most noteworthy early achievements in pursuit of meaning, and not direct benefit. That would explain why we often pursue wars over identity, instead of furthering our immediate economic welfare. Certainly an issue worth thinking about. Another wonderful feature of the Canaanite Golden Age is the large palaces that appear throughout the country. You can find these elaborate, multi-room structures in dozens of sites, such as Megiddo, Tel Kabri, Tel El Ajul, Afek, and Lachish. What did they look like? They were often well over 10,000 square feet in size. They centered on spacious pillared halls with large courtyards placed in between. The larger palaces had huge storage areas befitting their size and splendor. It was Mediterranean construction at its finest. The palace in Tel Kabri is quite instructive. It was one of the largest palaces in the southern Levant, large and fortified. It appears to have been the controlling structure for a territory containing as many as 29,000 people on a permanent basis. To me, it's the most fascinating Canaanite site of the period. It had the most negligible external influence of the significant Canaanite settlements of the time. Some of the southern ones had Egyptian influence, the northern ones had Syrian Mesopotamian motifs, but the folks at Tel Kabri had little outside influence. They traded a lot with Cyprus and the Aegean, what would later become Greece, but not enough to adopt their culture. They really did their own thing. In the early Bronze Age, Tel Kabri had been a low-key rural site. The houses there got bigger over time, and the area became fortified. All this happened within two generations. 
it showed a massive increase in power, resources, and sophistication. The population there increased significantly in this time. All this corresponded, not surprisingly, with the fading of Egyptian influence in Canaan. We see more remains of animals there over time. Same thing that you see throughout the country. And what's interesting is the animals that we find from this period have their bone marrow extracted from the remains. That suggests they were more commonly butchered and eaten. You can contrast this with the pastoral folks that lived before them, who usually did not slaughter their animals, but rather lived off them until they reached old age. This shows that they thoroughly enjoyed their messy palace feasts in the Golden Era. The fact that more animals were being slaughtered rather than maintained indicates this. What does that mean? Feasting culture is something that we see throughout the world. It's a classic example of trying to upstage your neighbors. Local notables wanted as much influence as possible. So what do you do? You invite everyone to a party. That party is a feast that you hold at your own expense using your livestock. The more animals you slaughter, the more people you feed, and the better you feed them. This in turn leads you to have more influence. Influence means more power. When you have more power, you get more cows. You can slaughter more of them. You can give everyone more bone marrow, and the cycle continues. During this era, palaces pop up all over the place, not just in Canaan, but most notably they uh, appear in Greece and Syria. Still, the Canaanites had their own version of the palaces, very different from their equivalents elsewhere. You see, in Greece and Syria, the most enormous palaces were constructed in order to control a large-scale, redistributive type of command economy structure. That meant they had large storerooms and palatial workshops. The ones in Canaan didn't quite have the same dominant economic position. Sure, there were workshops in some of these palaces. For example, in Tel Cabri, my favorite example, archaeologists found 75 conical loom weights and 12 spindles. But those artifacts were from various periods. It's not believed there was ever a particularly sizable workshop there at a given time. Most of the pottery used at the site was made in the palace, and they may have sold uh, whatever overflow they had to local villages, but it doesn't look like they made enough to sell in faraway locales or import further afield. That fits what we see in the rest of the country. One of the features of this Canaanite golden age is the standardization of pottery. Like in Egypt, the volume increases while the quality suffers somewhat. There were some pretty big workshops, for example, one in the Ramat Aviv area, where Tel Aviv University stands today, had no less than 14 kilns ready to make pottery for the people. This was good news for anyone who wasn't rich. Good pottery was readily available, even if you weren't a big-shot palace owner. That's typical of Middle Bronze Age Canaan. So we see the elites there as minimally involved in the regional economy taking what they need for the family from the local estate. In other words, they had no ledgers to calculate tax and only enough goods for the household. It's unlikely, therefore, there was any taxation, certainly not the heavy-handed taxation that we see elsewhere. It was a very much live-and-let-live model. Now, the elites weren't saints. 
they expanded the palace over the houses of poor locals. Indeed, in some areas, there's evidence that they fought back to avoid eviction, evidence of violence and death. And I'm sure the elites had no second thoughts about destroying their neighbor's home to expand. I mean, that's just what elites do. They also loved their imported goods. We can find the finest Cypriot pottery and Aegean-style art in these palaces. They imported spices from Syria, which they added to the local wine to make it better. They really had good lives in their spacious palatial courtyards. But they don't seem to have intervened in their residents' lives much, aside from satisfying their immediate selfish needs. You can compare that with the heavy-handed uh, tactics of the power-thirsty Egyptian pharaohs and their pyramids. But as a caveat, we shouldn't overstate this difference. I don't know about you, but as someone with a background in 20th century history, I imagine the Soviet Union and its attempts to control economic activity when I think of command economics. But this is over two and a half millennia before the first attempts at creating an absolutist state. So all we're talking about in terms of command economy is partial control, which tends to concentrate wealth in the hands of a small elite. Earl, one of the most famous economic historians, explains, quote, Redistribution is thus best seen as a system of controlled mobilization of surplus for institutional finance. It was never a total economy, so most activities, even in those economies, continue to be local and free of command, or even taxation in the Bronze Age. So when in Canaan, we're talking about even less control. So really, for most people, the palatial elites had almost no effect on their economic lives. Why didn't a relative command economy emerge in Canaan? It seems a good part of it was the lack of writing and mathematical knowledge. For example, counting tablets and seals are mostly lacking in Canaan. It shows a surprising lapse when considering how close Egypt and Syria were. Another issue, as always, was Canaan's geography, which kept cities divided and limited their power and their ability to control large amounts of land. The lack of writing, or even a clear system for counting, as far as we can tell, is perhaps the most fantastic thing about the Canaanite Golden Age. Seals and tablets were found here and there, but they appear to be imports the locals didn't know how to use. Official seals, which had already existed in the Copper Age in, in the area, were also pretty rare, and mainly found in Ashkelon. A few examples of writing are found in Chatzor, which, as we mentioned, was highly influenced by Syrian culture. But the Canaanites still developed some impressive societies without their own writing. That wasn't the only notable difference between the Canaanite palaces and their Syrian or Egyptian counterparts. In those stronger kingdoms, there were giant statues and figures of the rulers. They came from block statues of rulers and they had elaborate scenes carved on limestone and basalt basins depicting royal banquets. Meanwhile, this kind of personality cult was notably absent in all Canaanite sites. We should note something else about Canaanite society at this time. This wasn't one of massive inequality. You had elites, but society wasn't divided between them and powerless, poverty-stricken locals shaking in their run-down shacks. 
there was a pretty large Canaanite middle class. How do we know? The typical city was neatly divided by a grid with middle class neighborhoods featuring larger houses and better artifacts. Then there were those bad neighborhoods across the tracks, but of course, tracks hadn't been invented yet and wouldn't arrive in our neck of the woods until the Ottoman area. But you get the picture. So far, we've looked at the archaeological evidence. But there is some textual evidence as well. We'll talk about the Mari archives another time. But what did the Egyptians say? Did the Egyptians understand the sophisticated urban landscape emerging in Canaan at the time? Let's see. We've already discussed the Song of Sinew on more than one occasion. And as we've said, it describes the land as one where, quote, figs were in it and grapes. It had more wine than water. Abundant was its honey, plentiful its oil. All kinds of fruit were on its trees. Barley was there and emmer, and no end of cattle of all kinds, end quote. Sounds good. And to some, this suggests a sedentary and urban landscape. After all, it takes a long time to plant and harvest vines and fruit orchids. Protecting it also requires a form of organized society. Therefore, Freilich Rainey wrote, quote, There can be no doubt the author had before his mind's eye a highly developed society based on an extensive and well-organized agricultural economy. But the exact same text led Donald B. Redford to a completely different conclusion. He wrote, quote, Nothing more than could be had in any rural community that practices seasonal migration. Even vineyards do not necessarily bespeak a settled urban community. Indeed, the text doesn't mention cities specifically, and that goes towards Redford's point. But I believe this resulted from Egyptian chauvinism. It was indeed an Egyptian habit to habitually show other cultures as less developed. But for some Egyptologists, like Redford, the fact that a city like Byblos is mentioned in Egyptian sources and not Canaanite ones shows that they viewed it as an underdeveloped society. Another Egyptian source on Canaan at the time is the tomb of Mentuhotep. He was undoubtedly the greatest king of the Middle Kingdom and is credited with reuniting the country. Mentuhotep is mainly known for his exploits within Egypt. However, several mentions and depictions of Asiatics in his tomb and other artifacts related to him do exist. So we can surmise something about Egypt and Canaan's political and military relations. One of those inscriptions is pretty inst instructive. It shows the glorious king holding the head of a prisoner. Three others are bowing beneath him. They are marked as Nubians, Libyans, and Asiatics, hinting that the return of Egyptian power wasn't good news for the neighbors. You don't need a degree in art history to determine the imperialist message behind that one. The inscription beneath it reads, quote, Subduing the chiefs of the two lands, establishing Upper and Lower Egypt, the foreign lands, the two banks, the nine bows, end quote. Meanwhile, a similar image elsewhere is accompanied by a religious message, quote, Horus, who subdues the foreign countries, end quote, referring, of course, to the Egyptian god of that name. 
The tomb of Menhotep's principal general, Intef, has a detailed depiction of warfare in Canaan. It shows an army composed of Egyptian and Nubian soldiers armed with bows, arrows, and battle axes attacking a walled fortress. As we know, walled fortresses were indeed a hallmark of Canaanite culture at the time. The attackers have pushed a wheeled siege tower up to the walls, and soldiers can be seen climbing the tower to the top of the fortress. The Asiatic enemy is shown possessing lighter yellowish-brown skin, long hair hilled back with fillets, and decorated kilts. They're depicted defending the fortress, and in some cases, tumbling off the walls in defeat. Below it are scenes following what was, of course, an Egyptian triumph. We can see the winners leading away prisoners. Women and children were, as was the custom at the time, taken with them. There are other portrayals of this sort of conflict as well. Indeed, there are so many, it is hard to believe they are entirely made up. The battle between Semites and Egyptians almost certainly occurred in this era. However, opinions differ on where they happened and with what frequency. Our first thought is that our boy Mentuhotep invaded Canaan, and that's possible. But there's another, probably more realistic, option. Egypt was weak and divided in the intermediate period. It's quite possible the Asiatics moved down to Egypt and created settlements there. Indeed, there is evidence an Asiatic population existed within traditional Egyptian borders, particularly in the eastern delta during the first intermediate period. So, these depictions might be of a king reuniting Egypt. While he fought plenty of Egyptians to reunite the lower and uh, upper kingdoms, that may not have looked so great on his grave, particularly at a time when reunification hadn't been completely consolidated yet. So the powers that be may have preferred to focus on the Canaanites that he fought. Makes sense. Another option is this is just a stylized representation of the king intended to show his greatness. We already noted the Asiatics were one of the three races the Egyptians recognized, and showing that Egypt was superior to the other three may have just been a formulaic way of representing the king's power. Honestly, this seems like the strongest option to me. Despite these impressive tomb formulations, we know Egypt didn't have a significant amount of contact with Canaan during this period. They were too busy with the meltdown of kingly power in their own country. All that would change when Mentuhotep II reunited Egypt. You see, when it comes to Mentuhoteps, just like the Godfather, the sequel was better than the original, or at least it was better for the Egyptian monarchy. Unfortunately, it was the opposite for regular people in Egypt and Canaan. But that story will await future episodes. Now let's conclude this episode. The Middle Bronze Age was a time of radical decline in the power of the Egyptian royal house. That was a real bummer for the court aristocracy in Memphis, but it was good news for everyone else. For the middle class in Egypt, for local elites, and everyone in the neighboring regions of Libya, Nubia, and Canaan, otherwise known as the Four Races. For our Canaanite friends, it was a time of significant autonomy and prosperity. The local rulers were primarily interested in their own affairs, creating a time of unprecedented freedom and independence throughout the country. 
But as we know, in the Middle East, good times never last. Before we go, the podcast got some good news. It was named by Moment Magazine as one of the 10 best new Jewish podcasts of the year. Yay! I also want to shout out to our Singapore listeners, who seem to have a growing following. So, thanks. Finally, as you may remember, the podcast now has an email account, so if you have questions or comments, email me at historylandisrael at gmail.com. That's historylandisrael at gmail.com. Remember to follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. See you on the History of the Land of Israel podcast in our next episode.